Welcome once again to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. I was buried beneath my shame till I In this episode, Pastor Andrew talks about the consequences of sin. We can't just blame our circumstances or our weaknesses. We sin because of our remoteness from God. I want to look this morning at our engagement. And maybe that's the right way to go because on Thursday this week, our first ad is out there. And it's saying, are you a person of expectation? Join us for an awesome journey of life. We're finally managing to get out there and say, are you a person of expectation? And what is that going to bring? It might bring a whole bunch of people. And what are we going to say to them? And how are we going to say to them? And how are we going to connect with them? And that's part of the whole issue about our competency of engagement. So we've said in our vision, God's new agenda for us and the processes required of us to learn and grow in our weakest area as a church. The engagement of people and bringing them into the kingdom of God and our church. And I was giving some thought to this during the week to what is it we're actually trying to do here? And our assumption is that there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who have engaged God at one level or another, not greatly, and are waiting to know what they should do. And it is a critical issue for them not just in their life in this world, but in their eternal life. And that comes to the whole crux of what the gospel is actually about. Paul says in our readings from 1 Corinthians 15, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So Paul sees, and he says it in other places, that the gospel is at the center of everything. For him, it is the center of life. That he, as a persecutor of the church, had rejected Jesus Christ. And there on the Damascus Road met Jesus personally. And was totally transformed. And he wants us to know that the gospel is at the center of everything that God is doing on this planet. So what is that? For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he says that he appeared to others and up to 500 people at one time. So the statement that he died, that he was buried, and that he was raised is the testimony that Cephas and the other apostles and the other disciples and Paul himself absolutely declare. It is throughout the gospel that this Jesus who died at the hands of the Jewish leadership through Pontius Pilate was dead and then rose again for us. Now, Paul notes that Christ died according to the Scriptures and that he rose according to the Scriptures. So Christ died for our sins. And here we have a real problem. Do we have sins? Or are they just misdemeanors? Or are they just life? And I know that we can think of atrocities and sometimes scratch our head as to how someone could do that. We wouldn't do that. Does that put us in a different category? Or are we all in the same boat? Men and women who've turned away from God. Turned away from God deeply in our hearts. To the very depths of our being. We may not commit atrocities, or we may. And we might justify those atrocities, or we might not be able to. But at the heart of things, Sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark that God has set. And what is that mark? That we would walk with him, live with him, enjoy him in holiness and righteousness. Walking away from him is the beginning of sin. It's the beginning of arrogance. It is based on the concept that we can do it all by ourselves. We don't need God. We don't need some sort of mystical answer to the mysteries of life. We can do it our own way. And you know, we all have that, some to different extent. We do it our way. And what God calls us into is a relationship with him that is both eternal, life-giving, awesome. But we have to deal with our sin. Last week we looked at the essence of you can't really know earthly righteousness unless you've got an understanding of your own sinfulness. I remember when I was in 
college in Sydney. And this was an evangelical theological college. And my friend was a veterinary student and I was an engineering student amongst all these theological students. And he says, I've been doing a survey and I've asked everyone else and I want to ask you. He said, are you a sinner? And I looked at him and I said, no. He said, oh, you're the only person that said no. Everybody else in the place has said yes. I said, I was a sinner. Oh, yes. I can assure you I was a sinner. No doubt about it. But then I received Jesus Christ into my life and that changed that condition. Doesn't mean I still don't sin, but sin no longer owns me. If I sin, I still have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, as John tells us in his second chapter of his first letter. But it's not a given that we should sin once we received Jesus Christ into our life. Because when we receive Jesus Christ into our life, he does something dramatic with sin in our life. He breaks the core of it. He breaches it at the very roots of it so that we can begin to truly respond to God in righteousness. Now, I don't think we get totally righteous at conversion as some old-time Pentecostal thought. You came to Christ and sin was finished. Only problem was people still did it. So, and he was just astounded. I said, well, isn't that what the gospel's about? If Christ died for our sins and he's effective in what he did, it does something to our sins. It's not just sort of like, it'll all be okay. God doesn't send his son into the world to die on a cross for us so that we can continue to live the way we always live, apart from him, doing our own thing in our own way. He expects a change. It's not necessarily a perfect change, but it's certainly the beginning of an eternal change in sin in our life. Christ died for our sins. But in our culture and even in our theological culture, we have a problem with sin. And of course, none of us really like the idea of hell. And so many theologians have tried to dispute its reality. And so many Christians across the planet don't want to believe that a loving God would possibly have a hell. And I don't think any of us entertain a sense of, isn't hell just a wonderful place to go to? Right? It's not. It sounds horrifying. It is horrifying. So if hell's not there, does that mean there's no consequence for sin in our life? Does it mean we just get away with it? Because it's all oh, there, there. I understand that this was just a weakness you had. Does God say, yes, I understand that it was not you, but it was the circumstances that you were brought up in. 
Is that what God's going to say? And if that's the case, there's no consequence for sin. And yet everything around us tells us that there is a consequence for sin. There's a spiritual consequence. We are cut off at birth from God spiritually. It's why Jesus says to enter the kingdom of God, we have to have a new spiritual birth. We have to be born again. Because somehow or other, when we were born the first time, our spirit didn't get the fullness of what God wanted us to have. And the only way that we can get the fullness of a spiritual life is to be born again. Simple as that. There was a relational consequence. Tell me across the planet that everybody's happy with one another. Tell me that there is no conflict, that there's no wars, that there's no murders, that there's no atrocities, there's no abuse. Tell me there's no violence in relationships. And I have to say, well, you just got to read the newspaper. We know it. Not only we know it about what we read in the newspaper, but we know it in relationships. And we know it in some of our own relationships. That sometimes precious relationships that we have wanted to hold on just disintegrate around us. There's a consequence for sin. And according to the scriptures, there's a physical consequence for sin, and that's physical death. And you know, that's one of our greatest fears. How do we deal with death? How do we deal with what happens after death? What if nothing happens? What if the atheists are right? There's nothing there. Is that comforting? Well, it might be for some people. But what if heaven's there? Now, that would be awesome. But what a sin. And now we have the consequence. Because according to the scriptures, there's an eternal consequence for sin. Whether that's hell, I don't know. The scriptures talk about it. In fact, the one person who talks about it is Jesus. He raises the question in real terms. And he makes a promise, and I'll come to that in a moment. But he doesn't hold back. But if it's not hell, then he comes up with a thing called outer darkness, which I think could be worse because you're able to see everything that's going on in heaven. You're able to see the banquet at the end of time, but you can't enter in. You can't take part. And Jesus says that there, there'll be gnashing of teeth. So Jesus, according to the scriptures, declares that there's an eternal consequence for sin. So when the good news says Christ died for our sins, that is good news. That goes to the very core 
of our own personal heart problems. It goes to the very core of the problems that are raging across the planet. That if Christ died for our sins, and that's effective, it changes everything. It changes something that no matter how strong, how powerful, how rich we might be, we can't possibly change. Many a famous, strong, victorious person has cried because they can't control their own spirit. They can't control themselves. They can control the world, but they can't control themselves. They can't breach that what is at the depths of their being, something that brings them down every time. And Christ died for our sins. Now, to make sure we get that, they buried him. And they buried him because he was dead. He wasn't in a coma and somehow rather came back to life in the tomb and somehow pushed the stone away. He was dead, dead. And John in his gospel notes that they pierced his side and out flowed blood and water, which means the red and white cells of his body had separated. Jesus was dead. Why does Paul want to make a point of that? Because if he was just in a coma, then the resurrection's meaningless. Three days he's in the tomb. And then he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he not only had breached sin in our life, but he finally breached the consequences of sin in our life. And those consequences are both on a spiritual, relational, physical, and eternal level. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead basically gave us life and gave us eternal life Jesus said in John 10, I've come to give them life and that life abundant. Abundant, eternal life is what he promised us. In Jesus Christ, not only has sin been defeated, not only has death been defeated, but we are brought into a new relationship with God that is far greater than what God intended in the first place. Far greater than the relationship described with Adam and Eve. He brings us into a relationship with God through Jesus coming to the Father in the power of the Spirit to live in their communion, to enjoy their life, to enjoy their fellowship, to be part of their fellowship, to be part of who they've been for eternity. Peter calls it entering into deification. 
that we partake of the divine life. And we do that every time we engage God through Jesus. And we do that every time we take communion, that we partake of the divine life. So in the midst of our outreach, there's trouble out there. And there doesn't seem to be any real answer to it. And you hear people talk about tyranny, that governments are now being governments of tyranny. And we know what governments of tyranny are about. But as men and women of God, how do we deal with tyranny? We stay focused on the purpose of God. You know Daniel. Who remembers Daniel? What's the most famous thing you remember about Daniel? In the lion's den. And why is Daniel in the lion's den? It's because he bowed down and prayed to Yahweh. When the political enemies had got the king to outlaw anybody who bowed down to any other god, apart from the king. And they threw him in the lion's den. And then the next morning the king, very anxious, comes and Daniel's still alive. Three of his friends, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, end up in the fire. This is a real fire. Because they wouldn't bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they survived. They weren't even singed. Their clothes didn't have any smoke on them. Now someone said that they resisted tyranny and they're an example of godly people who resisted tyranny. But it was a very selected resistance. And you've got to get that because this is not an example of resisting tyranny. They only resisted and disobeyed when they were asked to bow down to anything except Yahweh. Daniel was one of the chief administrators of the Babylonian Empire, a tyrannical empire. He actually administrated it. He didn't resist it in every area. He only resisted it when it came to God. And do you know, within a few decades, Nebuchadnezzar and his descendants were defeated by Cyrus the Persian. And Cyrus was a benevolent king. He had a religious policy of returning people to their homeland and rebuilding their religious temples for them and paying for them. He returned the Jews to Jerusalem and paid for the reconstruction of the temple. Now Paul, who we've been listening to this morning, lived in one of the most tyrannical empires ever. The Roman Empire was brutal. Jesus lived and ministered in that empire. 
And you know, neither Jesus or Paul, they very rarely attack anything about the brutality of this tyrannical empire. Paul even tells the slaves to be obedient to their masters and tells the masters to be kind to their slaves. He doesn't tell them you shouldn't have slaves. He doesn't attack the issue of slavery in his time. And I was sure that in recent times he's heaped a lot of criticism about it. What was Paul's focus? Paul's focus was getting the good news of the kingdom out there. Getting the gospel out there. Because the gospel will change everything. And isn't it interesting that within three centuries, the church defeated the empire without raising a sword. The church focused on their job of proclaiming the gospel, of implementing its principles, of looking after people. The church that transformed the empire was not only rich by the days of Constantine, but was renowned in its looking after the poor. They looked after the poor everywhere across the empire. They'd also developed a leadership structure that Constantine was desperate to have to save his empire. The church beat the tyranny without raising a sword because they had a weapon that no army on earth can defeat. And that is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. That is our weapon. How we express that changes. Depends on the circumstance. Depends on the people. Depends on their focus. But what I like about our vision of bringing the people of expectation into the kingdom, into the church, is that all Jesus has asked us to tell them, it's time. It's time for you to come into the kingdom of God. Not to argue with them, not to convince them. You know, we don't have to convince them. And you know, that's an amazing point in time. Over the years, through normal evangelism to non-people expectation, you come to that point. The power that we have in our hands, in our minds, in our hearts, is the gospel that saved us. They needed as much as we do. And as I said over the last two weeks, don't think about what you're going to say because you can't work it out. You might think about it afterwards, but don't try and work it out beforehand because Jesus says the Holy Spirit will give you the words you need when you need them. Isn't that awesome? I don't have to be an intellectual. I don't have to be wise as anything. I don't have to be eloquent. 
we'll have the right words at the right time. And we don't need to fret or push it. Just let God make the time and the place. Let him make the divine appointments for us. All we have to do is turn up. This week and last week, we touched on a very deep problem we have. And that is the problem of sin. If Jesus is here this morning, and he is, then it's time to get it really right with him. Because he has something really awesome for our life. So let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you dealt with sin in our life. That you've breached its roots. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your presence and your spirit. Sanctify us anew. That we might walk in holiness and righteousness. And that our focus will not be distracted by the things around us. But it will focus on your salvation of every person on this planet. And the good news that you've given to us to do that with. And we ask this in your name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.